He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle, and we'll once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's, want to give them a wide berth. What is called a born loser? A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Kick it over to Case. I was in San Jose 12 hours ago, and somehow I'm here on time. I was in san diego a week and a half ago and i made it on time too excited to uh, listen to you guys talk about max vancito episode and it'll be a pleasure to listen to you guys i gotta say i've been traveling for the last seven days i didn't get as much work in as i normally would james yes so i would love to update you guys on my uh trip to italy to the motherland or uh how i recently had started a new job or how my wife and i are moving but instead i figure it'd be best to share with you guys uh, that for about six years, uh, someone in the Tennessee area has been catfishing people using my pictures from online, and I finally figured out who it is. Oh, I don't know this person. It's a complete stranger, and I don't know how to address it. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. But when I got back from Italy, uh, I had a DM from someone who was just at like two in the morning who clearly it was a woman scorned who was like, hey, I know this is going to sound crazy, but... Uh, I figured out all this shit and uh, this person's pretending to be you and gave me all of the information. This person's email, their, you know, where they live, what their phone number is, what they do for a living. I was like, holy shit. She just kind of like laid it at my feet. Uh, so if you're listening to this, like, just stop. Cause I'll just like, I'm going to like text your mom. Just like, <laughs> stop. <laughs> like, it's weird. Yeah. You know, like, like, do you want your sister to know you do this? It's weird. I don't know whether or not I should give you a high five or a hug. Like this, this is a strange position for me as well. I will say this. Uh, the other times this has been brought to my attention, if my wife wasn't as cool as she is, it would be a real problem. <laughs> is it a man or a woman? Yeah. Uh, it's a woman. It's a woman. It's a woman. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Aubrey, follow that up. So I think I'm teaching film studies wrong. <laughs> Acting was our topic for the past couple of weeks. I've already talked about the travails of showing them Jackie and how they responded to that. So I followed it with There Will Be Blood. I'm like, Daniel Day-Lewis, one of the greatest performances of all time. This will work. Of the 22 kids that were there the day I pulled them, one of them liked it. What? All of the rest of them did not like it. Similar to James, I don't know what to do. Can you just fail everybody? Well, that's the only choice, right? They, they can't pass after this. Multiple friends of mine, well, one in particular was like, you should have never done this. I knew it was going to be a bad idea. Did I make a bad choice? Am I doing this wrong? Or are they just are they just bad at this? No, they just don't appreciate good cinema. It's an excellent opportunity for discourse. I agree. In my world, I'm just excited for the Munsons. I know Rigby got a job working in L.A. James just got a new role. Um, you know, I, I like celebrating wins. And I love Halloween. Spooky season's my favorite time of year. It that means we get Stephanie to come join us for an episode. I, it's just it's hard to be mad about this time of year with the weather, football, everybody getting wins all over the place except for Aubrey in his classroom. Everybody else is thriving. So, <laughs> I'm I'm excited. So, with that, 
I'm excited to formally welcome Stephanie Malone back to the podcast. Hello. Welcome back. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me back. So for those who are not familiar with Stephanie or haven't listened to one of our previous episodes with her, she is the founder and editor-in-chief of MorbidlyBeautiful.com, a website dedicated to indie horror and genre entertainment, including movies, video games, books, comics, art, television, and more. She's also the co-host of several podcasts, including Cheer and Loathing, Guilty Pleasures, and Untold Horrors. Um, Stephanie pays the bills by working as a professional graphic designer, copywriter, and creative marketing director. Uh, Her other passions include writing, producing indie films, and sharing her love of movies as a film journalist and Rotten Tomatoes-approved critic. She's super active on Instagram, and you can find her at at srgreenhaw, G-R-E-E-N-H-A-W. She was previously with us the last two Halloweens for the Jamie Lee Curtis and Nev Campbell episodes. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I always feel like we're pulling you away from a horror screening this time of year. And uh, I feel kind of bad about that, but it's always really good. So I don't feel that bad. Don't feel bad. This is a, an absolute treat. Um, I think the last time I was here, it was just Cheer and Loathing. And I added yeah. Guilty Pleasures, which has a couple of spinoff podcasts. And also Untold Horrors is new as well. Nice. I don't like to sleep or have any free time or a life <laughs> or anything. I just like to work all the time. <laughs> That's what you want out of your guests, right? Someone who knows their shit. And I think you qualify. All right. Birthdays for October 26th. Rigby is not here yet, so I will take up the mantle on this one. I did a quick search, and there are actually a lot of good birthdays, so I had to pick and choose here. Um, but we're going to start with none other than Carrie Illis. Illis? Ools. You know who I'm talking about. Elwes? Elwes, exactly. Option number four. Um, he was in Saw, obviously well-known for The Princess Bride. Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and uh, Jungle Book, as well as the baddie. How old is Carrie Elwes? He's also in Liar Liar. Yep, that is true. Good actor. 55. <laughs> 62. Oh, this guy's in Maisel. I know who this guy is. 58. I just threw a, a cold. I have no idea. That was a complete guess. I was going to say 62, but I'll say 61. I think he's in that area. Well, you would be right because he is turning 61 on October 26th. So I would say you, you changing your answer Aww, led you to victory. Thank you to whoever said 62. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so next up we have Seth McFarlane. Uh, and you know him from Family Guy. You know him from Ted, A Million Ways to Die in the West, and obviously a pretty prolific voice actor and comedian. How old is Seth? Oh, this one's tough because you don't see him all that often. No. 50. 54. I feel like he's older than I would guess that he is actually. I think he's older too. I'm going to go 55. We have another person who is on the nod, and that is James. He is turning 50 on October 26th. Congratulations, James, with your victory. Yeah, I mean, good job, James. You can just tell, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see if we can keep this trend going and get somebody named Aubrey or Case to get this one spot on to to keep it it moving. All right, so last one is Rita Wilson, Jingle All the Way, Sleepless in Seattle. Tom Hanks' wife, Rita Wilson, is the other, probably the better way to describe that. How old is Rita? I have a losing strategy when it comes to situations like this because I go way low on purpose. She is 44. (laughs) That's really polite of you. 28. Yikes. <laughs> 28. Damn you, Case. You guys are awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice of you. Yeah, James, make a guess. Chet Hanks is like in his 30s, so my guess is she's 
62. I definitely think she's in her 60s. 67. Shockingly, she's not 28, nor is she 44. But (laughs) I know. I'm sorry, guys. But we're going to keep our trend going because Stephanie, she's turning 67. Stephanie is spot on twice tonight. And that is ridiculous. (laughs) That's really good. Wow. That's really good, though. That is. I, I don't think we've ever had somebody get too spot on before in 91 episodes. Congratulations, Stephanie. Either you're a sage or really good at uh, Googling. One of the two. <laughs> and, I, and I respect either one. So. <laughs> All right. Five actors we threw on the wheel for our annual Halloween episode. This, the way the wheel works for this is a little bit different than our normal episodes. We, we have four actors who weren't picked the last Halloween. And then we always add an extra one to the list. And then we spin that wheel. And in this case, it, the wheel didn't select Tony Todd or Bruce Campbell, who have been on there since the beginning. And Case is just patiently waiting for the Bruce Campbell episode one of these days. Yes. And then we've since added Doug, Doug Jones and Sarah Michelle Geller, But neither of them were picked because the wheel selected Max Von Sydow, who is a legend in, in this space. He, he has 165 credits, a lot of film. And then, as we'll talk about, got most of his early start in Sweden with Ingmar Bergman, which is pretty cool. So we got our first foray into Bergman as a podcast in 91 episodes. So very much looking forward to it. But before we get into the minutia, the the nitty gritty, right, we're going to talk about as much as we can about this man within a reasonable time frame. But before we do all that, we always start with some actor trivia where James tries to stump us Fast and Furious style. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read off three facts. Two of them are going to be true about Max von Sydow, and one of them is not going to be true about him, but will be true about one of the many illustrious actors in the Fast and Furious franchise. You guys have to guess which one is that. Fact number one is one of two actors all time to have played both God and the devil on film, and the only actor ever to have done it twice. Fact number two, chose his stage name based on a star performer he saw in a flea circus. Fact number three, holds the record for the least amount of dialogue spoken in a role that was nominated for an Academy Award since the silent film era. These are so good. I'm going to go with fact one, with the very educated guess that his frequent co-star Liv Ullman, I just assume, was in a Fast and Furious movie. And I'm going to say that's about her, even though I'm 99.5% sure Liv Ullman wouldn't be caught dead in a uh, Fast and Furious movie. That's just going to be my Bergman connection for the night. Well, fan fiction there. I like that. <laughs> All right. James, really box me in here. I don't really like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this was, these were targeted. Can't find a rapper for that one? Huh? Who can? <laughs> I can find a rapper for it. Because <laughs> I'm going to say it's the second one. And... Gotta be Bow Wow. <laughs> Where my dogs at? Bow Wow's not his real name. <laughs> <laughs> you learn something new every day on this podcast. I know one of them is for sure true, and I know one of them is probably true. I'm going to go with the third one is false. So no one chose number one, which is one of two actors to have played both God and the devil on film and the only actor ever to have done it twice. And that was a pretty accurate guess. You guys at least did a minimal amount of research, and I appreciate that for our podcast. So he's played Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told, Zeus in Hercules, the devil in uh, The Soldier's Tale, and Satan in Needful Things. He's also played an angel, a demon, uh, a priest, and the pope, uh, all while 
oddly enough, uh, being agnostic himself. The only other actor who had done it once was George Burns, who played God in his movie <laughs> called Oh God. Yep. And then he also played the devil in the sequel to that, which was Oh God, You Devil. Yep. But if we were to include voice acting, there's a third actor, and it's uh, Trey Parker, who was both God and the devil in the South Park movie, which I thought was a very funny third person <laughs> to throw in with those uh, two legends of the game. <laughs> Back number three holds a record for the least amount of dialogue spoken in a role that was nominated for Academy Awards since the silent film era. That is true. He's been nominated for two Academy Awards, and one of them was for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, in which he had zero spoken lines of dialogue. They didn't say a word. He was nominated at the age of 82, one of the oldest actors to get a nominee. Uh, one other thing I learned is he's one of six Swedish actors ever to be nominated for Academy Award, only male ever. We covered one of the actresses. Do you guys remember who it was? Swedish actress? Swedish actress. Alicia Vikander? Nailed it. You guys are on fire. Good job on both of you. Case, on number two, the fact that you know that Helen Mirren's name isn't actually Helen Mirren is very impressive to me because that was who I was going to use here. <laughs> Chose a stage name based on the star performer he saw in a flea circus. Uh, this man's incredibly interesting. So all three of these facts are actually true about him. Yeah. I was going to use Helen Mirren, but the way she chose her stage name is not as insane as how he chose his. He just... She just used her father's maiden name, uh, her mother's maiden name. He was born Carl Adolf von Sydow. I wonder why he wanted to change his name. Uh, he served two years in the Swedish army and with the army uh, quartermaster corps, where he adopted the name Max, which was the name of the star performer in a flea circus he saw, which was eventually turned into a sketch that he acted in. And so he's pretending to be a flea in this sketch. And when he saw the critics react positively to his performance, he's like, I'm just going to ditch Carl Adolf. I'm going to be Max from now on. That's, <laughs> that is a better name, I think, in, in these times. Because you got to keep in mind, this dude was born like a little before World War II. So I think, yep. I think the name Adolf was kind of on the outs at that moment in time. Still is. Yeah, uh, I think it, I think it spiked for maybe a year or two, and then really, really took a nosedive after. <laughs> Those are good trivia's, man. Those are really good, James. James, that's great, man. You always bring in good stuff. That's a great way to start. Glad to be back. All right, Case. This guy who's been around since 1929 that did 165 films. Tell us a little bit about his box office side. So on a personal note, I enjoyed this because there were, I think, four different currencies that I had to do conversions for, which was exciting. And one of them was uh, an Italian film. I believe they used the Lira. Yeah, they did. There you go. I'm shocked he's not in any silent films while we're, while we're talking about silent movies. It goes way back with this guy. And, and because of that, you know, I've got over 90 movies on my database that have a little bit of data, whether, whether it be critic ranking or budget or world grows, whatever. And I only have 18 movies with full details. So, and I think the crown jewel on his resume is certainly going to be The Exorcist from a box office standpoint. The number one movie we have on, on our spreadsheet is still Halloween. But this movie did some really amazing things uh, as it relates to cinema and box office. For starters, this movie had an $11 million budget and it world grossed $441 million. And the other thing that I find interesting in this movie is that they did a lot of really interesting marketing with it. 
And that's evident in that this movie opened with only 8.2 million. And then it ended up North American. I want to make sure we include our Canadian friends. North American gross, 233 million. Since 1998, so 25 years, this movie has only been below 1,000 three times. So this movie has stayed relevant. Uh, And in fact, is uh, 225 out of 250 for the IMDb top top 250. So incredibly powerful movie. He has the 13th largest budget, which I thought was interesting. But even more interesting is he has the number four highest grossing movie that we've covered in Star Wars. And then he has the fourth highest movie on return and investment in Exorcist. So despite uh, me missing a massive amount of data, he cheats my system and he didn't break my spreadsheet like Susan Sarandon did, but he definitely beat it. So my hat goes off to you, sir. The numbers that we do compare everybody against, 26th all-time box office, which is insanely low because we don't have hardly any of his numbers. His star meter is 984, which ranks him 45th. Here's where he does really well. I think it's the best combination ranking we have. He's ranked 7th in critic ranking and 11th in fan ranking with a 67.1 for both. Incredibly, incredibly well-received. 42nd and 4th in two different box office metrics, which ranks him number 14. I wish I had more data, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's fascinating, his his box office snapshot. Because none of that includes Bergman films, right? Like that whole Swedish era, most likely. So. Fascinating resume to put together. All right, so the early days of Max von Sydow, before we get into some of the, the early roles. So James mentioned Born in Sweden, 1929. I did double check because I was like, is was he older than Maggie Smith and Michael Caine? who are the two oldest actors we've covered. And yes, Michael Caine was born in 33, and Maggie Smith was born in 34. So Max is the, the old head on the, on the podcast of who we've covered. Um, he, did, he learned English at a Catholic school growing up. Um, then he was planning to go into the world of law until he saw a performance of Mintzheimer Night's Dream. From that, he ended up establishing an amateur theater group at his school to get into the world of acting. So n- probably not the only nor will be the last uh, young person that saw a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream and said, you know what, I actually want to do this theater acting thing. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. He studied at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm from 48 to 51, so he would have been, you know, 19 to 22 during some typical college age. As James said, he was a teenager during World War II, so there's probably a decent chance that's why he wanted to ditch Adolf from his name. (laughs) Going into dramatic school. Started on the stage side. His theater debut was in a performance of Edgemont there right around 1950. Uh, But his first film role was in the film Only a Mother. He played Nils in 1949. His next role was in Miss Julie, played Staldrang in 1951. And in 1951 is also when he got married to his first wife, Christina Inga Britton Olin. They were married for 28 years. They divorced in 1979. They had two sons together. Uh, who were both in the movie Hawaii with him later, which is kind of fun. The first of two marriages of, of Max's life. And the interesting part about this early time is he's starting to get into film and theaters. By 1954, so by the age of 34 or 25 years old, he had done 20 different theater roles. So 
Yeah. Much of his early days were on the on the stage. His Wikipedia is littered with them, but it's just so much, you know, just condense it down 20 rolls by that point. Just another performer that makes me feel lazy about my 20s. <laughs> thriving late case. That's what matters. But after all that theater and a few smaller film roles, he really steps it up and goes into the Bergman space in the seventh seal of an extremely famous film. He played Antonius, and this is what we're going to call our first major role, and it is a well-earned first major role, his first of 11 films with Bergman. And Aubrey's going to talk about it. It's a Bergman film from the 50s. It's the way that I would describe this to anyone. This is one of them ones for people that love movies. This is this is one of them, like, you got to have seen this. It's been on my list of shame for years now. I was really excited to cross it off. And so essentially, it's a knight returns from the Crusades and plays chess with the Grim Reaper. And I would like to bring back our game of which classic movie did Aubrey watch and not like. This isn't one of them. It's not it. No, I love this movie. This movie's great. I was about to say. I was about to say. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like it would be nice to play that game and let's just see who <laughs> who has driven their car off the road. Anyone that I've talked to that really, really cares about movies is like, this movie changes everything. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to live up to. And so I'm trying to go into this without that in my mind. But it's also like, this is, this is it. Like, I'm crossing a huge one off the list. It lives up to the hype in that sense. It's just a movie that kind of lives with you. And so I've been processing it. And I probably still will continue to do that for weeks. And so one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to leave it short and not give a full review is because I just wanted us to talk about it. Because I think this movie is brilliant. I think it's a perfect movie. I love it dearly. But I want to hear everybody else talk about it. Since you talked about um, what classic movies do you hate, my question for you is what classic movie that's considered one of the greatest films of all time did Bergman famously hate? Jeez. Ooh. This is why Stephanie's here. Because she knows her. <laughs> Whenever I hear this, I always think Citizen Kane. The Avengers? Wizard of Oz. The Avengers. Citizen Kane is the correct answer. Yeah. Really? Citizen Kane? Anytime I hear it, I always think that. Yeah, he thought it was pretentious garbage. <laughs> Are you going to tell Bergman he's wrong? I would not tell Bergman he is wrong about anything. I don't care what he says. <laughs> <laughs> Bergman was his theater director. Luck of the draw, eh? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good person to know. <laughs> What an incredible film, though. I saw it in high school. I had a teacher show it to me in high school, per your conversation earlier, Aubrey, about like teachers showing movies to high school kids. I will not be showing this. It stuck with me. Yeah. It, it definitely stuck with me over the years, um, but I did rewatch it. It was like the first film I watched when, we, when I knew we were going to start covering Max and unpolished act. I mean, he'd done a lot of stage work, but not necessarily the film side, and he is... He's stupendous. He's he's very, very good in this film. He was 27 when he did this role. He looks so young. I know. Well, he is young in this. He's 27 when he made this film, which is insane that he makes probably one of the best films of his career at such a young age. Mm-hmm. One of the best films ever, probably. How he's managing the, the weightiness of what's given to him, too. Like that, that in and of itself like shows the faith a director has in a person. Because to be 27. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's just wrestling with like life and death and you know all this kind of stuff. It's there's like a real genuine like curiosity and concern in it. It's like it's like a real lived in experience, which is from from my you know journey through some of the some of the few Bergman films I've been in. That's one of the things I like that 
he does is he takes these emotions or these thoughts or these ideas and he kind of he lives in them and so these characters are presenting these really complicated ideas from a place that feels so genuine so like particularly when he's when he's arguing with death which i don't think he knew it was death or the grim reaper at the time about religion and what it all kind of means and what's at the end i was just like like jaw drop watching that like 10 minute sequence he he plays his lead role in his first bergman film and then like i know we talked about like wild strawberries he he plays he's really in like one scene of that film um and he's fun he's like a fun jovial character in that but it's interesting that his first film was a major lead role and then wild strawberries two years later is not farthest from that possible but um, 1957. He's plays Anders. Anders in night in a uh, brink of life. This is the movie I enjoyed the most of all the Bergmans that I watched. I watched five, and this is the one I might have enjoyed the most. But this movie is dark. It's about these three women in like a maternity ward, and they're all like in different stages of their pregnancy, and it's just people in rooms talking, and so it's just people in rooms talking about like authentically about real ideas it doesn't feel really made up. it doesn't feel real tailored it just it feels so authentic it was just one of those where like when it was over i kind of feel like i just got hit by a wave like it was just like oh crap like what what was that and i need to watch it again even though i kind of don't want to because it's just devastating and so i watch this movie if you can find it somewhere, watch it. I if you can find it, watch it because it's it's really smart. Goes on a run here. He's actually in this more than he was in Wild Strawberries. Okay, that's good. He's not he's not like a star. He's the husband of one of the women that's in the maternity ward. Um we see him do two different things. He's in there jovial with his wife. And then he's in there in a more consoling role. And it's it's a lot of heavy stuff that he's got to do in a, in a brief amount of time. But you see, you see how talented and commanding he is to just kind of sweep in, do some like real heavy, smart stuff, and then kind of leave. All the films I saw, other than Wild Strawberries, he was the lead in the Bergman films. Um, and so Wild Strawberries is kind of an oddity in that he's not. He he's a very small character. So, <laughs> but speaking of big characters, we're going to go to our highest critic score. Picking a highest critic score for him was kind of challenging because I think there were five films that technically had 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. So it was like, Kyle, which one do you pick out of the five? And looking through them, I was like, I think the conversation is going to be best for The Magician because of how unique the performance is. And again, another seminal work early in his career like this. So uh, this is from 1958. And Stephanie, as our guest Munson, she drew highest critic score. So she's going to talk about it. One of Emar Bergman's most underrated masterpieces, The Magician combines elements of expressionist horror and traditional farce to make statements about hypocrisy and human nature. Released in 1958 and originally titled On Sikta, which translates to the face, it's a stunning visual spectacle that explores the power of illusion and the fraught relationship between rationality and superstition, reality and representation, and art and science. Compared to the magnitude of some of Bergman's most profound, deeply personal, and challenging films, many dismiss The Magician as being too frivolous. But although the film is a comedy, its subtext is considerably dark, exploring themes of doubt, despair, humiliation, exploitation, vengeance, and death. 
We're introduced to a traveling troupe led by Mesmerus Vogler, played by Von Cito. Having already faced charges of fraud and blasphemy throughout Europe, they are ordered to appear at the mansion of Consul Eggerman and his wife. There, a police chief and a doctor, a strict man of science, want to test the veracity of claims made by the troupe. They insist a performance be staged in the hopes to reveal Vogler as a charlatan. At the very heart of this film is the conflict between Vogler and the Dr. Vergaris, who differ primarily in the way they choose to confront life's mysteries. When Vergaris discovers that Vogler's assistant is, in fact, his wife disguised as a man, he tries to turn her against her husband. A fight develops that leaves Vogler hell-bent on revenge. The Magician is part of Bergman's film collective that explores what it means to be an artist and a master manipulator of others. That collective includes, includes Bergman's horror film Hour of the Wolf, which also features Von Cito in another of his best roles. Bergman believed in having a purity of intent behind the artistic process and criticized creating art for glory, fame, money, or accolades. He was famously unimpressed by critics and himself critical of many of the most revered filmmakers of his time, including Jean-Luc Godard, who Bergman accused of making hollow films simply for critical praise. <laughs> he was also very self-critical. He knew he was using tricks of the trade to persuade audiences that they were witnessing something real or truthful. And Vogler is often seen as a stand-in for the director himself. Vogler knows he traffics in smoke and mirrors, and his negative self-perception is made worse by the gullibility of many spectators. Mrs. Eggerman serves as an example of those eager to believe for personal, self-serving reasons. In her case, she's desperate to end the endless grief she has felt since her daughter's death. In this way, Bergman also allegorically explores the nature of religious faith, which would remain an enduring and potent theme throughout much of his career. The film suggests that the spectators are somewhat complicit in the deceptions due to their willingness to believe. However, Bergman also understands that in many cases, belief alone is the magic. When you're selling love, happiness, and an escape from a painful reality, whether it's real or not, is it really the point? Boncito as the magician is a haunting figure. Because he's mute, he can only communicate through his eyes and his body language. But he effortlessly conveys, without a word, the duality of his pained existence. He's both a manipulative charlatan and a tortured artist plagued by self-doubt and self-loathing. The team of Bergman and Von Cito is among cinema's most famous collaborations. And The Magician may not be as revered as some of the duo's other films, but it's a revelatory performance and a must-see for fans of Bergman, Von Cito, or anyone who loves cinema. Well done. I love it. <laughs> that was incredible. I mean, I'm sold. I've already seen it, but I'm sold. I'll watch it again because of that. Um, I have it, and now I hate myself. Oh, you should. I, I read trivia that he doesn't talk until the hour three mark. It kind of like get distracted me a little bit because I was just like, all right, interested to see how he conveys things until he gets to that point because I know it's coming. As I would get closer, it's like knowing your alarm's going to go off and you know it's coming off soon, but you don't know when. And so I kept waiting for the moment. Um, but it's a theme early in his career in, in these Bergman films. His nonverbals, some of the best we've we've watched in 91 episodes. His ability to convey emotion without saying a damn word puts him at a, a really higher echelon comparatively to other performers. Yeah, he's incredible in this movie. Completely agree. Yeah, it's a masterclass. It's so freaking good. How many times have you seen it, Stephanie? I think this was my third time to watch it. This story still is still holds up and is still interesting. 
and you look at all the other trash that gets remade, an interesting story and premise like this, how something like this hasn't been redone is is baffling. I don't know. If I was a filmmaker, I would not want to touch this or anything that Bergman had done. Yeah. <laughs> don't touch it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Stephanie probably agrees with this, but based on all this stuff I saw from Bergman, he was a really innovative storyteller for his time. Like the types of stories just seem way ahead of their time, decades ahead of their time. Absolutely. A movie that I was hoping I would get to from 1959, I just didn't find the time for it. But The Virgin Spring, he plays Tor in another Bergman film. And I just saw the description of his character and I was like, damn it, I wish I would have made time. And he plays a medieval landowner plotting vengeance. I'm like, damn it, I didn't see it. Do you know that's the film that Last House on the Left is based on? I did not. It's extraordinary. I highly recommend seeing that one. All right, I'm going to pull an Aubrey and have to watch it after the fact. Yeah. It's super dark, obviously, um, given you mm-hmm. know, if I say The Last House on the Left is based on it, you pretty much know that it's not good stuff, but um, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. Well, by 1959, he had made such an impact in those bourbon films that he started to get offers to do American films. And everything I read, he was like, nah, I'm good. Like, I'm going to stay in this scene for a little while. Eventually, he changes his tune about six years later. But by the late 50s, uh, American filmmakers were coming, calling to his doorstep to get him to come be in their movies. Including him turning down a role in The Sound of Music in 1965. He would have been so good in that, too. I can't even imagine. He <laughs> would have been phenomenal. But a film we talked before we started recording from 1961, another Bergman film, but one of my favorite ones that I watched, Through, Through Glass Darkly, plays Martin, a film, again, where his nonverbals are on point, the whole film, especially towards the end, and a story about people who see God and how to deal with those folks. So that film is part of Bergman's famous trilogy, which includes uh, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. So if you liked Through a Glass Darkly, the other two are also absolutely phenomenal. And they're all part of that mm-hmm. trilogy that everyone is, cites as some of his best work. His movies are so good. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. Watching this one in particular, between like the visuals, because he's just masterful at, at framing and blocking a scene, I feel like I could watch all of his movies on mute and get something out of it. And just also be visually kind of dazzled by it. But then also there's like a rhythmic poetry to the way that he writes and has his actors deliver lines. I want to watch everything again as soon as I'm done with it. Like he plays it really well. But man, that lead actress. Oh my. With Harriet Anderson. Mm-hmm. That performance right there. <laughs> she She just kills that so much layers so it changes almost every time you see her and the patience that bergman explores what's going on with her in particular and how everyone's interacting with it is it's kind of beautiful to watch it makes it so impactful to just see like from the play that they put on at the beginning to what how they're how they're interacting with each other at the beginning to how it all kind of just falls apart it's mesmerizing a film with only four actors kind of a contained set in ways and just really, really impressive work. I still feel so big because of the ideas. <laughs> the movie's so good. It does. It does. And there again, there's a lot of other Bergman films in here, as Stephanie talked about, Winter Light and some others, Silence. Um, but again, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to keep us going. Uh, all the way to his American film debut in 1965. He plays the Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told. <laughs> he finally goes across and says, all right, I'll do it. And he's, you know what, you know, when you're going to the film side... On the American 
side of the pond and you decide to play Jesus, you're making a statement. I didn't rewatch it, but I think I get the concept. But You know how it ends. He trained for six months at UCLA to do this role. I know that. Yeah. You know how it ends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you've heard the story. Spoiler you, alert. You get the gist, yeah. <laughs> you you kind of get the vibe, yeah. Joining the uh, the fraternity of Munsons who played Jesus. I know Willem played Jesus, and that lots of death threat thrown around from that film. So, did we cover anybody else who played Jesus other than Willem and Max? Willem Dafoe's absolutely had to have played the devil before. There's just no way he's never played the devil. And he played the devil in a commercial, and I was like, oh, well, that doesn't count. I was like, so it, it's crazy that of the amount of pe- the amount of religious movies that have been done, the amount of people who have uh, played religious characters, it's only him and George Burns have played both, you know, the good guy and the bad guy. So many of his movies deal with have an undercurrent of religion or deal with it head on. Which I find really fascinating. I was going to list them out, but it's actually too many to list out. There are a ton of his movies that are where he plays a religious figure or they're based around religious beliefs or identities or questioning a good portion of his films. And per James's point, the next big one I had on the show notes was 1966's Hawaii, which he acted alongside his sons and uh, played Reverend Hale, a fanatic missionary, and also got his first uh, like big award nomination, at least on the American side, with a Golden Globe nom. Yeah, I was going to ask if anyone checked it out. I wanted to as well. It ran out of time. I read a lot of really good things about it, especially as I started doing like the max life research. This one just kept popping up and I was like, I just don't have time for it, unfortunately. Yeah, me too. But a few more here. We'll just kind of quickly mention Stephanie mentioned earlier, Hour of the Wolf, Johan, one of five collabs with Liv Ullman from 1968, worked with her quite a bit. I double checked to make sure she was on our list of actors because after watching a few with her, I was like, ah, she'd be really fun to cover as well. Um, and then the Quiller mem- Memorandum, he played October, a neo-Nazi aristocrat in 1966. And I was like, that seems like some range there as well. He's good at playing baddies. He's done that plenty in his career. And so he's starting early on like that. And then another Bergman film that I thought was incredible. And it was 1968's Shame. He played Jan. He and his and Liv play violinists that are caught in the middle of a civil war, essentially. I love that movie so much. I just watched it recently for this, and I was like, oh, shit, I can't believe I hadn't seen this before. It's fantastic. It was a whole different pace from other Bergman films I'd watched, too. Just like to Aubrey's point of like nothing felt repetitive. Like, oh, we've got a war story going on where, oh, there's some real gnarly shit going on. This seems different and fresh. Highly recommend. Go watch this movie, as Aubrey would say. Go watch this movie. Another one of his uh, famous trilogies with Hour of the Wolf and uh, The Passion of Anna. The theme is uh, the threat of violence intruding on ordinary lives. So that's what that trilogy is about. All remarkable. Interesting. Yep. Passion of Anna was really good. Love Affair with a Widow. A whole like dark storyline about animal cruelty in that film, too. That's pretty hard to watch at times. Um, I'm actually impressed by the effects that they pulled off there in the late 60s. But yeah, it's just such a fascinating filmmaker and performer in Max. But as the 60s end, and he goes into the 70s, and again, Bergman's first uh, English film was in 71, but this is where we see Max go to the horror side, which is why he's on the list for a Halloween episode, and that's The Exorcist, is his role as Father Marin, a legendary, legendary film, and very excited to hear you guys talk about it. Unbelievable movie. So good. I think, in my mind, it's less scary at this point, and more just kind of like 
disturbing yes and uncomfortable i also think it's kind of a victim of its own success in that the scenes that are the scariest are kind of spoiled before you even see the movie because they are so iconic that like you don't need to have actually watched the exorcist to have known about the scene with the little girl's head spinning around right and so like that part i think now gets spoiled for new viewers um but in in rewatching it, I think the thing that stuck uh, stood out to me the most is I am just like incredibly impressed by how well practical effects. If you just pay a good makeup artist to just like bust their ass, like like forty years. I had to look up how old he was during this, and they made him look like he was seventy years old. He's like a forty year old man when this movie was filmed. He's like pretty young, and they did makeup on him to make him look like like he was, you know, near the end of you know retiring from his job and then of course the little girl is like so repulsive looking like it's hard to look at her it's so disgusting and it's all because of like the amazing practical effects that they put in here linda blair i think finding out that he was 40 when he made that film blew my freaking mind like mm-hmm. i yeah yeah fully believed he was a 70 year old man for the longest time that's why i was shocked when we were covering him i was like this guy was old in the exercise. Like, how old was he in like Shutter Island? He must have been like a thousand. And then, James is like, he's in Game of Thrones. How? He's a sketch. He's been years old. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? I had never seen this movie before, guys. Wow. I know, but I had seen seminal works such as Scary Movie Two with James oh, Wood's character. Okay. Uh, I had seen This Is the End with. Met, you know, where they're trying to cure Jonah Hill, the beast. So I felt like I had a good foundation to watch The Exorcist. Yeah, I mean, you had practically seen the film at that I had heard mm-hmm. Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice say, I've seen Exorcist 170 times, still get funnier every time. <laughs> and it is, a, it is so funny. It is such a funny movie. The shit that they let that little girl say on set in front of a camera to adults just is some of the funniest stuff I've seen. It was probably the funniest movie I watched preparing for this episode. <laughs> I've never heard anyone describe that film as funny. That's amazing. Mm-mm. So you mean to say when the 12-year-old child is <laughs> masturbating with a crucifix that you thought that was funny, Kyle? I just want to get this on record oh, and make sure. My God. I think you're twisting my words here, James. Sounds like it's in context. James, you got a new job and all, but I'm sure Case and I can dig up some old sound bites to uh to to make things challenging. <laughs> I just want to make sure we get this on record. <laughs> when she says your mother sucks cocks in hell, I mean, how, how do you not laugh at that point in time to a little girl? Say, it's so funny. It's a spooky movie, and and he's not in it a ton. Mm-mm. Like Father Marin shows up. What he's in the first scene. Yeah, and then he appears back in in the, the end of the second act, and that's that's really it. The first scene's like a good fifteen minutes, though, and it's just it's yeah. just him like walking around Iraq, archaeology, yeah, being scared and shitless. And you know they filmed that on site. They're actually in like holy air, uh, like the holy area of Iraq when they're doing that. Like it was a whole big deal. No shit. Wow. And it was shot beautifully. Yeah, I feel like we could talk for an hour about this film. There's so much random trivia, like the history, the lore behind it. Like is is wild. It's crazy murderer was in one of the scenes oh dude and like a ton of people who acted in this movie or worked on this movie like died shortly before or shortly after yeah the exorcism genre is so like beat to death at this point but at that time it was it i'm sure it was super unique and new 
but now it's just like oh another exorcism movie cool the thing i do think aged really well with the movie is that they address how absurd it is in like with the actual priest himself in like the first 10 minutes of the movie where the mom's like hey would you do an exorcism and he's like yeah if this was the 15th century he's like but like <laughs> no we we don't do that anymore because we know like mental illness is a thing and then she's like right right uh can you come over uh, and like the moment you walk in you're like nope we need to do an exorcism because the girl is a fucking disaster like there's she's no a, other she's way. a demon yeah she's a demon it's like that's very clearly a demon no question <laughs> The last guy got thrown out of the window, just as a heads up, you know, <laughs> but feel free to stop by. I'm, I'm sad that Rigby's not here, because when we said we were going to cover Max von, von Cito, the movie he mentioned immediately is one of his favorite films, and that's Three Days of the Condor in, from 1975, a really fun like spy thriller that I think has stood the test of time, and Max plays one of the killers, is the best way to put it, the assassins. I don't know how you would describe his character, but uh, he's kind of the, the head of the the group that's in the, the middle of causing all the chaos in the spy thriller. What a good film with Robert Redford. It's so good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's like an evil evil secret agent, I guess is how you describe him. Yep. Yeah. That movie just catches you in the first 10 minutes when like they introduce you all these people and then this group comes in and just wipes out all of them. And you're like, okay, I gotta know why that happened. I'm in. Let's go. And it's Robert Redford. What a snack that man is. I didn't rewatch it for the uh, for this podcast. Does it hold up? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's really, really good. Okay. And it's a Sidney Pollack movie. That's That must be one of his early ones, right? Mm-hmm. Go watch that movie. It's streaming free. If you're listening, go watch that movie. It's fantastic. Very different than some of the other stuff we've talked about, but and Von Cito is really good in it. I feel like he's just so effortlessly cool. It's just like, yeah. he just sort of breezes around and he's so compelling. And even when he's not saying or really doing anything, you're just... He's just mesmerizing, I think. James, from your research of him, I didn't get the sense that he was the kind of guy that would like, other than his six months training to be the Jesus, I feel like he's like a guy who just shows up on set. You like give him a little bit of a script and he's just like, yeah, I got this. With these people who have like large theater backgrounds, it's more so if they could just Mm -hmm. read the script and emotionally connect to it. It's not a lot of like, I need to be in character for months or I need to do a ton of research. It's more like, do I do I feel like I'm connecting to this character? Because if so, then I think I could do this. All right. So going from a really good movie to a pretty bad movie in Voyage of the Damned, he plays Captain Schrader, a movie that drags unbelievable, has terrible reviews. I don't know why I watched it, but I saw the cast. The cast is loaded. Faye Dunaway, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Denholm Elliott, Jonathan Price, like a lot of like actors, like Jonathan Price looks like a baby in this movie. And uh, Von Cito plays the anti-Nazi captain. So he was refreshing in a movie that, man, I couldn't finish it. It was like the second act was aggressively long and it hurt my soul. But talk about wasted talent. Was that the story about the group of exiles who are on a boat and they get sent to like somewhere in South America only to get sent back to Germany? It was during Nazi Germany. They put a bunch of Jewish refugees on there to as a PR stunt, basically, to make it look like they're like getting people out and not murdering people. And then, unfortunately, the boat, it's based on a true story, they couldn't dock anywhere because nobody wanted them. But again, it's like a two and a half hour movie. It's ridiculous. And they focus too much on like love stories and shit. And when you just want to like know the story itself, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah, okay. I don't recommend people watch it unless you want to see a really young Malcolm McDowell, Jonathan Price, like some really interesting 
actors playing roles that that was fascinating i was gonna ask if uh von cito is good in it because i feel like even when he's in trash he's just amazing he is because you believe i will say his his anti-nazi perspective like from the first one of the first scenes of the film they're about to take off and the there's a couple german soldiers who are treating these refugees like shit and he literally is like that's not how i run my ship you're not going to do that here, blah, blah, blah. So you get the sense that he's anti the establishment and willing to put his neck on the line when obviously they're in the middle of a pretty significant humanitarian conflict. So he was delightful. I did not mind his character. I didn't mind his performance, but the movie itself is pretty bad and it is rated accordingly. Good question. But 1977, he finally makes his Broadway debut in the night of the Trebades. Trebades? Anybody know how to pronounce that properly? I'm not good with that. I'm honestly shocked it took him until 1977 to make his Broadway debut, given so much of his theater work. But again, it's probably him just being like, I don't really want to dip into the American market unless I have to, because he lives in Sweden. So at least at that time. The same year, though, they released the sequel to Exorcist and Exorcist II, The Heretic. He appears in that mostly in flashback scenes in that film. But what a big old pile of poopy that one is, huh? <laughs> Ooh, it's not good. Well, Kyle... The reason he can only appear in flashback scenes is uh, I know we don't want to spoil a movie from the 70s, but uh, he doesn't make it. See, see, a little dead? He a little dead? Yeah, he doesn't make it at the end of the first one. <laughs> He's a little dead in that one. I watched this, and I feel like they were really trying to squeeze that money gun because the the concept of them like using these like machines to tap in each other's psyche to find the the ghost that's or the demon that's still there was aggressively awful. Yeah, The Exorcist 2 made uh, roughly $415 million less than the original. I'm glad you squeezed in less. It, it had a higher opening weekend. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. And then everybody went back and said, this fucking movie's awful. <laughs> Don't. They're like, nope. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a victim of the first one's success in ways, but even then, it wasn't even a good idea. There's, there's not. It's I'm just trying to draw it out. Yeah. But 1980, he enters the 80s and plays Emperor Ming in Flash Gordon. What a costume. Did you guys catch what Flash, Flash Gordon's job was? Uh, no. He was a quarterback for the New York Jets. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. He drops that line. I was like, get the fuck out of here. You guys could use one of those. <laughs> I really wanted to rewatch this for this episode. And I just couldn't. I didn't want to pay $15, but I also just never got around to it. Dang. Yeah. There it is. There wasn't a cheap renting option here. It was like six. Yeah, it was super expensive. And I was pissed because I've never seen it and I wanted to watch it. So you guys can help me out. Do I need to watch this? This isn't this isn't a part of my cultural movie experience. So I've heard a lot about this movie. I, I've almost bought it a handful of times because I've heard that it like has a good 4K release. And that's kind of what I do over here. So I was like, maybe this is a good opportunity. But I never got to it. So do I need to watch this movie? I remember it being good. But I have watched a lot of movies since 1980. Hmm. And I don't know if it's still good. So I don't think it's good. <laughs> okay. It's an experience. Can we say that? Yes, I think it's fun. I think it's worth watching, but not for not for great cinema yeah. purposes. Mm. Sometimes we need those. In the movie Ted, we're reminded about how great the... Flash Gordon theme is. It is really good. Yeah. Ever since I've seen Ted, I was like, I feel like I have to watch this movie at some point, but then it's not accessible at all. It's a shame, which is shocking. It's mentioned in like several different things because I've heard a lot about this and I'm just like, mm -hmm. 
I'm being honest, I was just like, oh, this is like like an older white person thing, and I just missed it. <laughs> so I don't know. This is probably his best costume, though. Of of all the movies he's in, it's probably the most entertaining costume he has. He looks so good. Is there some cultural appropriation going on there, though? For sure. Uh, probably? I don't know. His character's Asian, Emperor Ming. Yeah, it for, there for sure is. Yeah, it's not good. Maybe that's why it's hard to find right now. Vancito's people buried it. <laughs> His kids buried it. Uh, it's the 80s, right? That's what it was all cultural appropriation, right? That's like we just start there. Yeah. I wonder, did anybody ever see an interview where did he talked about this and whether he views it fondly because of that? I don't know. I don't I've never seen him talk about it. Genuinely curious, yeah. In uh, December of 2020, the British Board of Film Classification branded Evil Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon as a discriminatory stereotype. So, we might be onto something that it's tough to find for a reason. Yes, I would I would go with that. A, you mean a white Swedish man playing an Asian emperor might be cultural appropriation in some way, shape, or form? No way. Yeah. Partially insensitive. All right. Well, we'll move on to another movie that I think white people really like, and that's Conan the Barbarian <laughs> from 1982. <laughs> he plays King Osric. Oh, man. A film I had never seen either, and I watched on the plane to California. And I, this is not a movie you should watch on a plane when there might be kids nearby. No. Because there's like orgy scenes. There's a lot going on in this movie. Yep. <laughs> I literally would have to turn my screen. At, I'm like, oh, shit, I can't. No. That's bad. Somebody's telling a story about you right now. <laughs> well, there was this creepy guy on the plane watching this orgy. <laughs> Had to turn Trevor's head like five times. <laughs> Trevor won't get off his phone since that trip <laughs> to California. I'll tell you what. What is that movie you're watching, sir? I mean, it was fu- it was okay. I'm glad I watched it. I'd never seen Conan the Barbarian. It's just Arnold doing Arnold things. And just a periodic orgy popping up every now and then. I remember this movie a lot more fondly than I did in the rewatch. I did not enjoy this movie in the rewatch. James Earl Jones as the the baddie is just like a really interesting choice. And I don't think it fit very well. Like he has the demeanor of it, but I uh, just didn't love it. I did appreciate him having a full head of hair and bangs. That was nice. That was a good look for James Earl Jones with bangs. (laughs) (laughs) That's not Denzel's James Earl Jones. <laughs> I'm watching it on the plane, and when he he demonstrates his power by telling the girl to, to just jump and fall 100 feet and kill herself, I'm just like, all right, well, this might be worse than the nudity I just saw. This is pretty awful. It's pretty bad. Did Trevor think about that scene? Did he react? I don't know. <laughs> I just asked for a hand check at that point on Trevor. <laughs> what are you doing over there, buddy? not in it much he plays the king osric he's in like one scene so it's a smaller part but back-to-back roles in movies made for white people where he plays like a king or an emperor so mark the trends wherever you do oh shit please quote me on that one stephanie on twitter that's a really good quote i'm writing it down right now we'll talk about a swing in genres because we go from flash gordon and conan to strange brew where rick moranis is introducing you to a whole new lexicon, and Max plays Brewmeister Smith, who is the baddie in the movie, trying to make people drink bad beer. Not near beer, but bad beer. It was a fun movie to watch. I'm not going to lie. I was really excited to watch it, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. I love seeing him do comedy. It's so great. Mm -hmm. He's so serious and respectable, and then he's just also so funny. 
He wears this turtleneck in the movie that is just hilarious to watch <laughs> in really serious scenes. He's wearing a black turtleneck, horny. But it's these two Canadians who have their own like late night like PBS channel where they talk about beer and different things. And they end up fired, so they get jobs at this this brewery. But then it turns out the brewmeister, Smith here, is basically doing some funny business with the beers to try to control people. So it's so stupid and so different than Conan and the Barbarian back-to-back years. Sounds like it's different than anything he's done yet. Oh, yeah. It's very fun. It's a very silly film, and that's not something he had done really up to that point. Silly films like that. It's very unique. Did you skip Victory? I didn't skip it intentionally. The man's got 165 movies, but probably. <laughs> You're just incredibly good at pointing out uh, other Munsons. That's a Michael Caine movie. Michael Caine, yeah. There's a bunch of movies that he has crossovers with that I had to cut. Real quick, this movie's corny as hell with Sylvester Stallone as a soccer star. I wanted to watch it, but it seemed like another one that was really hard to track down to watch. You didn't miss anything? No, I don't know. I feel like every Sly Stallone movie is an experience. Come on. It does have Pele in it, so that would have been nice to see. But let's get to the Bond movie on the list. And that's our largest critic app, which is Never Say Never Again. He plays Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who has become, that character has become pretty well known because it's been mocked through the Austin Powers world and others. But Rigby would normally cover this, but Rigby's not here yet. And so I think we'll just kind of go back and forth a little on this film. I hated this movie. It's not a very good Bond film. I'd never seen it. I did not enjoy this. I was shocked to see Kim Basinger in it. She is not an ugly person in this film. Stunning. So I, I didn't finish it. Is she is she considered a Bond girl then? Yeah. Is she in the lineage of Bond of Bond girls? I did, did not know she was in that. So that was a that was a pleasant surprise. It just has a very underwhelming baddie. Yeah, he is. But that the the one guy that that is Kim Basinger's husband, he's just very Max. underwhelming. Yeah, the story yeah. is. I mean, I saw the reading. There's a reason it's largest critic app. I don't think it's very beloved as a Bond film. Ooh, yeah, seventy-one thirty-seven. First Sean Connery Bond movie I saw was this one. I, I had a good time. It's not very good. Mm-mm. It's odd, but I don't know. Anytime I see a movie of like from the '80s that's like trying to be like a big like box office movie, they're all like most of them are kind of like. Yeah. Strange. So I'm just like, oh, the 80s were weird. Like, none of those people probably remember making that movie. <laughs> so, like, yeah, they're, they're on Coke. <laughs> I had a fun time with it. I'm glad, I'm glad you did. I, there was a couple of scenes that I, like, particularly enjoyed. I mean, it's just the bond of the 80s is not the bond of now. They were like, they really leaned into, like, sexism. Mm-hmm. That's probably the right way to put it. Also, <laughs> one of the most bizarre sex scenes I've ever seen was in that movie. The motorcycle chase was kind of dope, though. I was in on that. I love that for you that you enjoyed it. I and you're describing it very well. It's not convinced me to ever rewatch it, but I appreciate you because you're right. Because the '80s were fucking wild when it came to cinema. Yeah, same thing I say about Rocky Four. Like, yeah, they did that, <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of great. What a soundtrack! What a soundtrack! Never gets old. So good. I don't know if I'd recommend this movie to anybody though. Oh, you want to watch the Bond movie? Watch this one. I don't know. I don't really like the song either, and that's kind of the bit, right? You got to like the Bond song? Mm-hmm. I don't really like that song either. All good, baby. An interesting Bond connection is he was... I, I thought I had read this. He actually was turned down the role of Dr. No. Really? Years later, they uh, they offered him 
uh, the role in Never Say Never Again. So where are we at on the title to 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 make this like a real serious transition? Never say never again. I kind of like it. Never no? say never. I do appreciate that Bond leaned into the stupid titles back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they say it in the movie. Where do we think Rigby would have landed on this? Do you think Rigby enjoys this film? Or do you think he hates I it? I feel like he would have hated it. Well, since he's not here, I'm going to say he loved it. And I'm pretty sure I've heard him say it's his favorite film of all time. Yeah, he told me to watch it. He was like, he doesn't text me too often. He was like, hey, Aubrey, you got to watch this one. We got to talk about it. I think they're going to hate it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get your back. He's not even here. I still don't know if you're kidding or not. That's that's the part. You'll never know. That's true. Uh, We'll just assume he's middle of the road, baby. 50. 84. So we got a big chunk before our next review. And that's, he plays Dr. Kynes in the Dune experience, right? This one with Kyle MacLachlan. I just know the story's so long that it's like impossible to tell it in a single movie. Is this the one that everyone said sucked? Yes. But now, but now likes? No way. Yeah, man. The people like this movie now. I think it has had a resurgence. I think it's a cult classic now. Mm. Young kids on the social medias are like, nah, this movie's good, guys. Mm-hmm. We weren't there, All but those it was young good. Kids. <laughs> All you need is a TikTok trend, and next thing you know, you're back. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to watch it, because I heard it was bad and really slow. I watched Dreamscape, which was around this time, which was not very good either, but I don't always make good decisions. And an odd trend, he was good in it, and everything else was very bizarre in this movie. Very bizarre. Probably explains why. <laughs> yes. 1986, uh, he is in a Woody Allen picture. He's in Hannah and Her Sisters. Played Frederick alongside Michael Caine and John Turturro. Also, oh, Turturro was a writer in this film. He's, doesn't, he's not in the film, but he's one of the writers on the film. Famous Woody Allen film. So just drawing some connections, some parallel there. Rigby loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say very unsarcastically, probably my favorite film I watched with him, and I recommended it yesterday to the group, was Pele the Conqueror from 1987, a role he got his first Oscar nom for. He plays uh, plays the father of Pele in the movie, and it is almost two hours and 40 minutes and doesn't feel like it at all. And it's this story about him and his son who start working on this island um, as like farmhands, helping out with like take care of cows. And Pele is this little kid who has aspirations to want to go to America. The story is really fun, and Max plays this father character who is kind of heartbreaking to see on screen because he's kind of broken and he's trying to make this experience where they're like laying around and flies on them all the time work. Uh, And I really enjoyed the movie. He said that this was, I mean, I guess it's not shocking when it's the movie that, you know, you've nominated for your first Academy Award, but he said this was uh, the favorite movie that he's ever done. I love that. That validates me. Congratulations, Kyle. It's a heartwarming film. It's a, it's a tough film at times. Don't get me wrong. It's just a really cool film. I highly recommend people check it out. 1988 is when he made his British stage debut in The Tempest, uh, a role that he played 30 years prior on the stage in Sweden, which I thought was pretty cool. Three decades later, got a chance to play it on the British stage. And then his only foray into directing was uh, a Swedish film in 1988 called Katinka which, uh, based on what I read, not many people knew about it or saw it outside of Sweden, unfortunately. Um, 89, he had a, he has an uncredited role in Ghostbusters 2 as Vigo. 
the voice, right? Which isn't Vigo the bad? Yeah, he's the voice of Vigo, right? That's like a pretty big deal, isn't it? I think so. Odd that they didn't credit him with this because that is a big deal. <laughs> I don't know either. That's why I put it on here in green because I was like, I feel like this is the thing that we should talk about. But I don't know. Was that one of those deals where he was so popular with some of his past movies where they were trying to not have him credited so it would catch people off guard? That's possible. I mean, he's got a good voice for it. That deep voice, like, it's got a little bit of accent. Like, I'm surprised he didn't do more voice work over the years, but I think he's a stage performer at the end of the day, right? He wants to be in front of people. So, yeah, makes sense. 1990 plays Dr. Ingham in Awakenings. A film that I didn't rewatch, but I very much enjoyed last time I saw it. It's with Robin Williams and De Niro. I was going to say, is it De Niro? Yeah. De Niro. There's a legend in there. I just couldn't remember. I'm, I'm thinking of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Nicholson. But kind of a dark story about folks with encephal- encephalitis. I can never pronounce it. They're very catonic. And I, I know it was a true story. So it's a pretty cool movie. I just don't remember his character in there. He's one of the doctors. 99, he got his first Emmy nom for his role as Zaz in Red King White Knight, a miniseries. He narrates Europa in 91. He was in, I mean, he's in a ton of stuff during this time. So this is just like scratching the surface with Citizen X. He plays uh, Dr. Bukanovsky in 1995. I know a movie that has really great ratings. I mean, he has so many films per case's piece that have really high uh, critic ratings throughout his career. It was hard to pick. Yeah. Judge Dredd. He played Judge Fargo in 1995, another Slash Stallone movie case. I am the law. Anything remarkable about his role in that movie? Is this the start of his roles where he seems like the guy that's on the side of the right, but then you find out later that he's he's really the villain? Well, that's a lot of the judges in Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. That's true. You're right. So they like the character arc for those guys. Yeah. Is this a movie I should watch? No. I'm asking similarly to uh, the way I did before. Go watch the new Dread. Yeah, it's okay. It's more like famous because uh, it's a cool idea and it's Stallone in his peak, but the newer movie does it better. Lena Headey is incredible in the new one. Yeah. She's awesome. Okay. Noted. My biggest criticism with this one is Rob Schneider, who I do like, is billed higher than Max von Sydow. So I don't, I don't stand for that. We suck again. Mm-hmm. 96 goes back to the religion side, plays the vicar in Jerusalem, plays a vicar in Jerusalem. And then he got married again in 1997, this time to French documentarian Catherine Brelay. And he adopted her two sons. So he's had four kids throughout his life. Two were his and two came from the second marriage. And then we get to What Dreams May Come. He played The Tracker, a movie with some pretty heavy themes with Robin Williams, Cuba Gooding Jr., um, and he is the, the, the tracker who's helped navigate him through hell to find his wife. A movie, another movie I watched in high school, Aubrey. I watched What Dreams May Come back in the day. Did you like it at the time? My teacher, who was considered my mentor, like I loved it and obsessed with. So even if I didn't love it, I wasn't going to tell him. Well, that's my play is what you're saying. I need to go in like that. Guys, Deep Blue Sea is this important to me. That's, <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's this important to cinema. Yes. If you've got a connection to them, then yes, that's the way to go, because then they'll tell you what you want to hear. But I'm interested to hear James's perspective on it. So I grew up um, in a 
household where I was the only boy. And uh, one of the women in my household was my grandmother who lived there my whole life. And she was a devout Jehovah's Witness and incredibly religious. My family is not religious, but my grandmother was. And when she saw the preview of this movie, she thought it was called What Dreams Are Made Of. And in the preview, Robin Williams does some cool painting in what you assume is heaven. And she took me to see this movie in theaters when it came out. I was 10 years old. When the movie starts and you quickly learn that Robin Williams has died and is haunting his wife who's still alive and gives her so much grief and heartbreak that she kills herself that he then has to navigate through purgatory and hell to find his wife. My grandmother was so appalled. She got up and left me in that theater when I was 10 years old. She went outside and waited in the car and I finished the movie by myself. At least she didn't leave you at the theater. You know, that's good. That is my true experience of what dreams may come very heavy for a 10 year old should not have seen it. My grandmother absolutely misinterpreted what this movie was going to be about. Have you watched it since? No. Okay. I think I've gotten enough of an experience from it. I think that's fair. <laughs> it's got a great story to tell. I think it's sad. Uh, I know uh, Von Cito plays essentially an angel who's kind of carrying Robin Williams, you know, over to the other side. Uh, but it was so fucking heavy. A lot of those Bergman dark films, this was the darkest film I watched preparing for this episode. It is aggressively dark. So you wouldn't have a 10 year old watch it? Not without a, some guidance as to what the hell they're watching. You wouldn't leave a 10-year-old in the theater by themselves to finish <laughs> watching it? <laughs> like, you unpack this shit on your own. You'll figure it out. Did she hit you with the, like, you can stay if you want? Or did she just go? No, 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 no. <laughs> it was a, that like, a hands up, that's it. Walked out of the theater, and I was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> I was like, is she going to the bathroom? Is she coming back? Like, And she never came back, and I was just like... Should I go check on her? And when I went outside, the car was, she was just sitting in the car right there. I was like, oh, hey, you've been here. What's going on? And then Max von Sydow, who's the tracker, the angel who's helping him cross to find his wife, is really Cuba Gooden Jr.'s doctor character in real life playing, like masquerading as him. Is that, does that make sense? It's complicated. It's weird. He's very good in it. I will say that. But the, the green screen action in this film, we've come a long way. That's what I'll say. Uh, things you didn't realize when you watched it in ninth grade, but you watch now as an adult and you're like, oh, wow, the, uh, the the effects here are not the greatest in what dreams may come. According to IMDb, it won an Oscar for those very visual effects. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I'm sure it was great. <laughs> At the time, your teacher was like, yo, kids, we're in the future right now. When they're in the hell part, it's pretty bad. When they're showing like the painted versions of the landscape that's pretty cool i will say that there's some some visuals that are pretty locked in but that's what hooked uh hooked my grandma she's like oh that's a cool interpretation of heaven mm -hmm. <laughs> oh that's funny and then the last one for our largest audience gap was minority reported plays lamar from 2002 a movie we haven't talked about in 91 episodes which is shocking i knew rigby was really excited to talk about this too so i'm sad he's not here i like this movie awesome movie that was fun watch awesome movie does he get his eye taken out in this movie? Or does he have something with his eyes? I'm trying to remember. Tom Cruise does. Thank you. I knew, that, I knew there was some eye surgery. Yeah. Yeah, he gets his eyes removed and replaced. I feel like there's some creepiness in this movie that it's over 20 years old. And I feel like 
things are coming true from this movie. Like, I'm waiting for the time when you walk through an airport and you just start getting targeted ads directly to you. Like, hey, Craig, while you're in San Jose, make sure you check this out. You know, like, it's because that, that happens in this movie, if I remember correct, right? Cool kind of dystopian things that do come true. My favorite being the predictive ability of uh, we're, we're going to predict that you're going to commit a crime. You know, even though you didn't commit it, it's like, yeah, that I feel like that's coming. It's like, that's cool. It's like, no, you're, you're going to do it. So we're just going to arrest you now. Cops already do that to, to the kids on the street. That's a good call, Kyle. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not as, it's actually way less scientific. Some kids on the street. Isn't <laughs> yes. that what stop and frisk was? Some kids on the street. I was going to say young black kids, but I didn't want to just hammer the nail directly. <laughs> I'm filling it for you. That's those are the kids we're talking about, people. If you don't know, oh, you've got a hooded sweatshirt on and potentially baggy. Well, we we know you're on your way to a crime. Everyone uh, always asks like. How did Giuliani clean up New York City? It's like, well, he just arrested literally everyone. We're like, oh, yeah, all right, racism, <laughs> racism. <laughs> yeah. It's like that got it. Yeah, I'm gonna apologize, guys. I really want to apologize because I skipped the the Willennium, and uh, you would think I'd be better at that by now, but I'm not. So just so you know, we're in the Willennium. That's two episodes in a row, dude. I know. I got to get better. At when that. I said turn of the century, I thought about it. I almost said it, but I can't bring myself to do you, it. You can't, you can't do it. That's my, that's my bet. You can't do it. He's going through a lot right now. I like the, I like the nudges. Yeah. The Willennium is, he's struggling <laughs> he's right now. It turns out he's been divorced for seven years and no one knew. So this it's rough, rough streets for him. Chris Rock's trying to get in on his girl, get in on that action. You know what I mean? All right. Largest audience gap. 2007, so we skipped ahead a few years here just because he's slowing down in terms of the total number of projects he's doing. But he steps into the Rush Hour 3 world alongside our boy Chris Tucker, and uh, he plays Jules in case has it. This is the 2007 installment of the Rush Hour franchise, and it may be because I watched it on a plane, and so Elevation had to do, like, it, it affected my evaluation of this. But I think the best way to summarize this movie is unnecessary. That's it. He plays the like the guy running the criminal court that is trying to finally figure out who the triads are. And it turns out he's in cahoots. And I don't know. It's I know Aubrey and I disagree on this. I just didn't enjoy it. And it is a 17 critic audience, 63. And boy, am I on the side of critics, which I normally am anyways. I'm kind of a critic guy. So it lines up. I agree with almost everything you said that's critical, except that you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I will also agree with pretty much any other criticism that is lobbed at this movie from anybody that is on this, because you're probably right. <laughs> and I still love this movie. And I can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense. It's mostly stupid. It's got all the problems of a trilogy of this kind. Yes. Where it's just like we've we're just repeating things in different ways. It's very enjoyable for me. I, I enjoy this is the first movie I watched when we did this. Oh my god. I was like, he, I didn't even know he was in this. I didn't even know he was in it. I saw it on the show notes. I said rush hour three bet play. Because I had the Blu-ray of this movie. I was very excited to watch it. And I had a blast. It's also, there's just something enjoyable about seeing Chris Tucker in his bag. I just like, yep. yeah. I like him having a moment. And while he's not like killing it in this, I just like that he's having a moment. And I think Jackie Chan is endlessly watchable. I've, I think he's the type of person I can watch in anything. 
bringing it back to uh, our boy Max. Uh, essentially, spoiler alert: he's murdered by a French taxi cab driver. Uh, R.I.P. How about that? It's wild. I'm like, wait a minute. This French guy just shot this high-ranking world political figure, and then they're just like, hey, man, you got to get out of here. You got to get out of here before the cops show up. And he was like, okay. This tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> I didn't even remember that that happened. How could you kill off the iconic character of Jules just like that, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, speaking of French... There's a film around this time that I didn't even have in a show notes. I had at one point, but The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, he's in that, and that's a phenomenal film. I don't really remember his character, but that movie's very good. So go check that one out as well. Five more years until our final review. And so the first one there is he crosses over with Leo DiCaprio in 2010's Shutter Island. He plays Dr. Nearing, a sinister German doctor. This movie's so good. So good. This is the first movie I remember him being in, and... I thought it was great. I thought his role, even though it was minor, I thought it was great. I recently rewatched it, and it's really phenomenal. We talked about it in the Leo episode. It's always interesting how these twist movies hold up long term, right? Like if if it's even if people know the twist, does it still work? And that's when we talked about um, Sixth Sense on the Tony Collette episode. That was the big conversation. Like even if you know it's coming, does it still work? And it, in in this case, it seems like it does. That's the joy of a movie like this. Are you going back and rewatching it and seeing how the track was laid for it? Yep. And if it was mm-hmm. done well, I think this movie is almost flawless. Like it is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's such a strong cast too that it's easy to watch because everybody's turning in good performances. Right. Shout out to Michelle Williams and Mark Ruffalo, but especially Michelle Williams. <laughs> we know you're a fan. We know. Where's the poster, Aubrey? Turn the camera so we can see the poster. No, well, I'm saving that. I'm saving it all for the Michelle Williams episode when you guys can all just stay home. Dude, Aubrey <laughs> runs one of the Michelle Williams fan accounts on Instagram, yeah. like <laughs> michelle.williams.fans. That's Aubrey. No. <laughs> I would never. I would never disparage my queen like that. The real Michelle Williams, real fans. That's that's him. <laughs> Hey, James knows some people that are active on social media. <laughs> Same year, though, he plays Sir Loxley in 2010's uh, Robin Hood alongside our boy Willie Hurt. He plays a blind father. And so a little bit of range, a little bit different. Plays a blind character. Kind of caught me off guard because I'd never seen Robin Hood. This movie's not good. Yeah. It's not good in the worst ways. Because when I'm watching it, it makes me ask questions like, what happened here? How did this go wrong? Why are they doing these things? I don't get it. All of the pieces are there. Yeah. Russell Crowe doing Russell Crowe stuff. Kate Blanchett's in this movie. Like, all the pieces are there. This movie should be awesome. And it's it's just bad from the jump. <laughs> in case you enjoyed my text to the group when I said I can confirm that uh, Max is aggressively blind in this movie. <laughs> I think I nailed it on the head. It sums it up, man. I will say he didn't hurt, nor did he significantly help the movie, is what I'll say. Mm-hmm. It's just an ensemble piece to it. This is one of those you just write off. This has nothing to do with him. So do you just transition and then take on a film and get another Oscar knob in the next year? And extremely loud and incredibly close, is that what you do? That's, that's what someone who's super talented does. What he did. Also, that movie, not good either. Yeah, it doesn't have great ratings at all. It's not good. 
surefire way to get me to not see a movie is to make it about 9-11 and be emotional. The only 9-11 movie I've seen is United 93, and I will not see any of the heartstring ones. Just not going to happen. James, what if it was a 9-11 story with dogs? Would you watch it? Well, one, I know how both those stories end, and the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) No, this one's tough. It's everything that James is telling me. Did he earn his nom? He's great. So, yeah, he's great. It's one of those emotional movies where if you do it the wrong way, it's manipulative. Yeah. If you, the right person is doing the right things, it's very genuine and it works. He's doing it the right way, um, and everyone else, not as much. It's produced by Scott Rudin. That's a very strange movie for Scott Rudin to produce. I think it was one of those things where it was like, has the Statue of Limitations ended on this? Can we tell these stories now? Oh, yeah. Some people just really like emotional movies. Which, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. Some people just do. Yeah. And they connect to them in a way that like something about it is genuine and authentic to them. And yeah. so it works. I didn't get that. Well, in 2002, right around the time of Minority Report, he became a French citizen. And that's because he married Catherine Belay, the French documentary, and, and moved to France. And so spent the last 20, 18 years of his life in France. Why I put it in the 2012 timeframe, dyslexia, most likely, but just, you know, he moved to France in the 2000s. It explains why he was a French diplomat in uh, Rush Hour 3. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I, 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 I'm close to the source material on this one. More points for the quality of Rush Hour 3. I forgot to tell you, in Rush Hour 3, uh, Roman Polanski, yep. French like detective or inspector detective and he's not credited in the united states versions of it but in the european versions he is he's on rotten tomatoes i was looking at the the listing when you guys were talking about it and i saw sounds like that's a couple points against uh rush hour three (laughs) we'll uh, take a couple of points off of that thanks (laughs) all right well speaking of taking some points off Boy, are we going down to the lower part of the barrel to 9%, and that is with our lowest critic score, which is a movie called Branded. He plays a marketing guru, and James has it. So this movie has a 9% critic score uh, and 24% audience score. And for your entertainment, I I have a lengthy review of this movie. (laughs) The first question I ask, did any of you watch this? No. I like Stephanie's seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Because I was going to say, there's no chance you'd watched it recently because it's not available anywhere. Uh, so you'd have to have seen it when it came out. Because at the moment, the only way you could watch it is the way I watched it, which is on YouTube in Spanish with English subtitles. Um, I'll say this. The movie had a lot of promise with the premise as a potential like weird, surrealistic version of They Live, which I thought was great. Um, but unfortunately, instead of like a fun monster movie, this movie is like incredibly pretentious dreary lecture on late stage capitalism and it thinks this message is like super deep but it's actually like really simple and mean um so it stars ed stoppard uh lily sobieski remember her yeah uh, jeffrey tambor who, who i love and uh our boy max Boncito higher plot of this movie so the film starts documentary style we get flashbacks to this main character's kind of rise to powerful marketing uh executive but you learn about this rise because uh in this movie there are two separate times in which people get struck by lightning 
it starts with him getting struck by lightning and receiving magical powers to understand what people want. And therefore he becomes this world renowned marketing executive. That is actually how the movie starts, by the way. Uh, and so we fast forward now and we're in Moscow in like 2017. And we're told that this main character is like this marketing genius, but the entire movie comes across like an absolute moron. Um, you just know he's super successful. Uh, he decides to get into reality TV production and he does an extreme plastic surgery show. Uh, but the woman who's getting the plastic surgery goes into a coma and it creates protests in Russia in which people no longer want to be skinny and instead they want to embrace being overweight. And this causes fast food chains to explode in popularity, which is the first twist of the film in that this was all part of the evil Von Sidu and Jeffrey Tambor's plans to make being obese the ideal body type so that capitalism can thrive. I swear to God, these are the plots, and this is not even close to where it gets crazy. Um, this guy becomes a recluse and he stops seeing his girlfriend who's pregnant at the moment with his baby. Uh, some might call that type of guy a deadbeat, but in this movie, he's just kind of finding himself. He has a vision that we're told happens. You don't get to see it and it's never explained. Uh, but because of that vision, he sacrifices a cow to, to God begins to be the only person on the planet who can see that brands are actually some sort of unseeable monster that connects to the base of everyone's neck and forces them to buy fast food and get fat, including uh, his baby mama and their son. So his son is chunky now. And that, and this is honestly where I think this movie could have like totally worked if it wasn't just like so fucking mean, because in this movie, like the apocalypse is that everyone is like overweight. And like they almost had it, right? It's like it could have been like a monster movie about capitalism, running everyone's brains, kind of body snatcher. But instead, of, he's like living in hell because everyone's fat now. I was like, oh, dude, you're such a dickhead. His counter to this is to create a vegan fast food chain that's healthier. And when he creates this vegan fast food chain, he sees that it hatches its own monster. And that monster fights the unhealthy fast food chains. And that's when he learns that he needs to have the brands fight each other. I swear to God, I haven't made a single thing up yet. Um, and once that happened is when we have our second lightning strike in the movie in which the evil marketing guru, Von Sidu, is in the middle of a marketing meeting and is struck by lightning and vanishes and disappears, never to be heard from again. What the fuck? I swear to God, he's struck by lightning and he just vanishes like, like Dracula. And then you just assume that the gods are like mad at him, that they're the marketing gods are mad and they're losing. And like, that's the branding thing. The movie ends in like his utopia is that like the brands have all fought each other and now people reject advertising and branding. And it's just like this utopia where people don't do advertising anymore. And like it, it really blew my mind watching this movie. Like, it could have been cool, and instead it was so fucking bad and pretentious and stupid. And I don't, I think a nine is an accurate portrayal because I'll give you points. Because honestly, I didn't think the CGI was that bad. And I do think that uh, it's like a cool idea that like a freshman year film student could have came up with, uh, and they didn't execute on it at all. But it, it is among one of the worst put together movies I'd ever seen. It was truly a remarkable experience for me. I almost want to watch it now. 
so you would think that, but you don't because in between all the absurd shit is just the most boring fucking exposition of this dumbass explaining like right like he might as well look at the camera and be like do you understand that capitalism is bad like yeah we fucking get it man it's all you've been talking about the whole time we got it yeah i'll just lean on your review that sounds good no i actually thought that was fairly phenomenal like i was when you said you were gonna give the plot i was like but how (laughs) you did a great job You know, it's interesting. It's like a movie about marketing and how important and effective it is. And this film was marketed as something that could and should be really cool, but was like, it was false advertising. Like the movie that you get is not at all what they market it as. It's not like a they live monster movie type of thing that you think it's going to be. It is interesting you say that because all the feedback I read online was like, this preview is amazing. Yeah. This movie sucks so bad. <laughs> it looks like it should be fun. It should be so great and so fun and so whimsical. And it's none of those things, which is no insane. That's unfortunate. So you're saying a little bit of a black mark on his resume. That's what I'm hearing. Honestly, like he's not asked to do anything that he already hasn't mastered at this point. It's not his fault the movie sucks shit. He's supposed to be like a creepy, evil marketing guru, as they call him, and he's fine. He's good at you know he's good at the creepy, evil. Like I'm smart, but you know doing something yeah. you know behind the scenes. Not his fault the movie sucks shit. Correct. That is a quote to live on, and I appreciate that. Put it on the poster. It's just crazy. He's been nominated for two Academy Awards, and then he's in this movie. He must have owed somebody a favor. That's all I've got. Or he's just old and didn't read the script. He's just like, oh, marketing, capitalism? Yeah, I hate that. Let's do it. It feels like one of those movies that was pitched, like you said, like a Twilight Zone episode, and it's pitched through the ideas. The script wasn't done. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They're like, we'll, we'll write it eventually. We'll get around to it. Let's kind of round it out here. So 2015, he appears in Star Wars The Force Awakens. This is Laura Santeca, as uh, Case mentioned, a movie that made lots of money. And then uh, he makes his appearance in Game of Thrones as Three-Eyed Raven. He was in three episodes of that, and he got an Emmy nomination for his uh, his guest starring role in the show, which a lot of people got, get, got Emmy noms for their guest star performances in Game of Thrones. So that's not a regular. I mean, he's great. He does a lot in a little bit of time. I mean, he's really like, I don't want to say like the magic, but like the more, the more fantasy elements of what the show does. So the more like religious parables, the more like thoughtful, like fantastical stuff. He's kind of the, the figure of that, him and Bran. So he, he like, he is an important character. And so like, that was kind of the first thing that me and my wife even said was like, oh, it's three hour raven. Like that's kind of who he is to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool that uh, for a career that started for him in the 40s, that the thing you think of is something he did in 2016. I think that's pretty cool. Kind of going through his career and going back to the Bergman stuff is it comes, it almost kind of comes full circle. It's like a lot of the stuff that that character is trying to do. It's just reminiscent of the ideas and the things he was exploring and playing with in the movies he was doing with Bert. You know, his his parts what weren't just dragons and, you know, cutting people's necks open. It was like he's really trying to push something thoughtful and considered here. And so it kind of brought it back to that part of his career, which it just kind of shows how ingrained that part is in him. Right. Even all the way this late into his career. He said he really loved fantasy films. And he really 
wanted to be in Harry Potter, but they wouldn't let him because they were only casting oh. British actors. And he also wanted to be in Lord of the Rings. And he's just amazing because he's like so a super geek and loves that kind of stuff. He's been so good in Harry Potter. Yeah. So good. He could have pretended to be British. Come on. Yeah, he could pretend to do anything. That's stupid. Oh, man. Come on, people. Can you imagine if Max Vencito wanted to be in your film and you're like, nah, that's okay. Like, that's insane to me. The one thing we know about J.K. Rowling is when she makes up her mind, she refuses to change it. Yeah. Refuses. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many people tell her she's wrong. She's like, I don't <laughs> fucking care. He's not in the movie. He's not British. <laughs> Getting an Emmy nom for this. He's one of uh, two Swedish actors to ever receive an Emmy nomination. <laughs> it's a Skarsgård. It's always a Skarsgård. There's like seven of them. Well, he did a lot of other smaller stuff around this time too, but most important to note is in 2020, he passed at 90 years old uh, in France. Um, from what I could tell, just old age, right? <laughs> He's an old dude. Yeah. Um, unless somebody wants to tell me otherwise. Nah, dude, I think once you get up to 90, people just don't ask, you know? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredible career. Just think about it. I was... I wrote this down in my my piece. He acted in nine different decades. Wow. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. That's crazy. He was great in nine decades. Yeah. If you count Echoes of the Past, his last role in 2021, we plays one of the last living survivors of a Nazi massacre. Mm-hmm. Like an interesting role for your last role when you've been in movies or projects in nine different decades. Fascinating. For a guy that was... Starting his career during World War II, his last role was playing a last living survivor of the Nazi massacre. It, that is, talk about full circle for a guy whose name was Adolf. Yeah. <laughs> Which was an incredibly popular name prior to, you know, the one. Ruined it for everybody else. Bad for the brand. It would suck if, like, the most evil person on Earth's name was Kyle. You'd be like, oh, goddammit. <laughs> Oh, hi, Kyle. <laughs> I'm going to go by my middle name from now on. Okay, well, since Rigby's not here, he would normally do our top performances. But since he's not here, I pulled up a couple. And I've got two options. Do you guys want to go over Screen Rant's version of his top 10 movies? Or the version from with his top nine, I believe. And they were both published in 2020, right after he passed. The Ringer. The Ringer, because I know how Screen Rant works. The Ringer. Mm -hmm. Let's go with Mm -hmm. The Ringer. All right, so these are not numbered, so it's just the nine, what they consider his nine most memorable roles. Let me just read it. These are the nine best performances of his immense career. So what do we think? Well, I mean, The Exorcist has to be on there somewhere. The Exorcist is listed, yes. Is the Seventh Seal one? Yeah. So it's not numbered. It would have to be. So it's uh, Seven Seal is the first one listed. So, yes. Yeah. I would think the magician would be on there too. I would hope. Magician is not listed. What? That list sucks. That's the worst list I've ever heard in my life. Are there more Bergman films? Yes. Passion of Anna? Passion of Anna did not make it, but there's one other Bergman film on the list, and I love it. That's your hint. Pele the Conqueror? Pele the Conqueror is on it, but that's not the Bergman film I'm referring to. But yes, Pele is on here. Is Hawaii on there? Hawaii is not. Shame. Branded? <laughs> Branded's got to be on there. <laughs> We've mentioned all of them except for one, is what I'll tell you as well. The greatest story ever told. No. No. Through a Glass Darkly? Close, though, for the, Ber- the other Bergman film. The other one that I love. Mm. Hour of the Wolf? Nope. Wartime film. Oh, shame. 
Shame. Shit, yeah. That that makes sense. If I'm going how they're ordered, then it's one seventh seal, two shame, three exorcist, and then a bunch that you guys haven't mentioned. What's well, the ringer? So is Game of Thrones on there? No. Nope. They're all films. Is Minority Report? Nope. Anna and her sisters? Yes. Anna and her sisters is on here. I think it's like number seven. You're miss you're missing four, five, and eight and nine. Four, five, eight, and nine. Condor? Is that I can't remember the name of it. No. No. Flight of the Condor. No, that's not yeah. on there. Or three days of the Condor is not on here. No. Nope. That's not on there? Jeez. Shutter Island. Shutter Island is number nine. Oh, good guess. Robin Hood. Virgin Spring. Nope. No other Bergman films on here. Give me loud and incredibly close. 9-11, the musical. <laughs> 9-11, the musical. That's <laughs> what James said. My guess Whoa. is what James said. <laughs> Here's the hint. Four and five are both from the 80s, and eight is from the mid-90s, and we didn't talk about it. Oh, is it? Is the immigrants on there? No. Nope. Are you seriously? Oh, my God. I mean, this show goes to show how many good films this guy has that you were you guys are digging. You still haven't touched a few of these. So they're all good, then. Uh, <laughs> Citizen X? No. I don't know if you guys are going to like the choices for four and five. I'll just say that. I don't think they're great films. The best intentions. Nope. We talked about four and five from the 80s, and they're not great films, but they're memorable. Never say never again? The Bond movie? No. He's, not, he's only in it for like 30 seconds. Until the end of the world? No. Like, I'm literally going... I'm going down all the movies that have high rankings, either critical or... Conan. Oh, yeah, Conan. Conan, no, but you're so close. You're scorching. On both sides of Conan, there's two films we talked about. Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon is there. What is his best role? <laughs> Which is a choice. I mean, he's probably very good in it, if you take out the appropriation. Not victory. It's not victory. Nope, it's a goofy, silly film. Strange Brew. Strange Brew. Wow. He's fun in that movie. Yeah. He is good. Number eight is one we did not talk about, but I know, Stephanie, you mentioned to me via Instagram that you had just watched it. Shit, I can't even remember what I told you. Stephen King novel. Adapted. Oh, Needful Things. Needful Things. Oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about that movie. That movie is... Oh, wow. Yeah, he's great in it. It's not a good movie, but he's great. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I agree with putting four and five on there, but... Plays the devil, right? But bringing it back to this, I think we can confidently say in top three roles, right? Seventh Seal, The Exorcist, and then pick your poison. Somebody, Everybody's probably got a favorite third. I put Pele the Conqueror in there, but I know you guys might pick something else. Magician for me. Magician. Based off the review of that movie, I also say The Magician. Because I haven't seen it. But it sounds like that would be my choice. I like him as the Three-Eyed Raven. Also that. Game of Thrones. There you go. What about you, Stephanie? If you had a number three, what would you pick? Or wipe the other two. I don't care. Wipe what you want. No, I mean, yeah, it, it's probably The Magician, although that's really hard because he's done a lot of great Bergman stuff, but probably The Magician is three. Okay. Well, you guys can yell at the ringer. All right. Well, let's get into the Munson meter. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to 100 based on a variety of factors that could include anything from longevity Project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success, or anything else that matters to us as Munsons. Uh, I get the honor of going first this time. I will reiterate, this was thoroughly enjoyable to go through. I really, I got a chance to explore Bergman, which I had really never done before. I got a chance to watch films across 
eight, nine decades to see this guy play all sorts of random characters. I got to cross off things like Conan the Barbarian from my list that I'd never seen before. And then like Oscar worthy pictures and then silly movies like Strange Brew. This guy's got a lot of range. He picked a lot of variety of projects. And so I always love when we get performers where it's not like I'm watching 50 50 rom-coms or 14 dramas. You know, you get a little bit of everything with him. He is extremely intimidating on screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's in The Exorcist, which is a pop culture staple. And he works steadily from the time he was a teenager until he died in 2020. This dude, longevity. I don't know if anybody can do it better legitimately. And he's the oldest actor we've covered. But the man worked from start to finish with Game of Thrones and some of these other projects. I loved him in Pele the Conqueror. I thought that movie was so cool. And I really appreciated his work. I'm sad that he never won one of the major awards. He got nominated a few times, nominated for a few Oscars. I think because he was in the Swedish scene so much, he just didn't get the the acclaim that he probably could have if he was taking on more American films and doing some bigger stuff and working with some different directors on the American side. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to put too much weight on that because his project choice is so good. And I love that he played all those religious characters and is a was a devout agnostic himself i thought that i just think that nuance is really cool so um, i'm gonna give a pretty high score i'm gonna give him an 86 uh aubrey that's the simplest way to put it being as i'm i'm constantly trying to find out how like the scale of how good these actors are this guy can go like that's just he's just he's just got it it's it's the thing when you watch any love any entertainment of any kind and you see a person and they're just great at the thing that they do. He's got that thing. It's otherworldly what he can do on screen. He does it in different ways. The subtlety, the nonverbals, he does it all. Probably the thing that's underrated, and maybe we haven't mentioned enough or we haven't mentioned directly, is his presence is so commanding that he's a big part of making these things iconic, like the Three-Eyed Raven. Mm-hmm. Just him doing the thing makes the thing iconic it's a pretty cool thing to see in someone that i don't know is a household name but he everyone knows him yeah and i think that's chalked up to his talent oftentimes like we talk a lot about directors great legendary directors being paired up with great legendary actors he probably has the nerdiest combination in those that he's attached (laughs) to bergman but that's also, that speaks to how great he is because he does great work there. I just think he's a great actor. Is full stop. So I'm going to go 88. Stephanie, our guest months in Europe. Listen, I need to just preface this and say that I there is no way for me to be objective here. I think I mentioned this before. Like Ingmar Bergman is my favorite director of all time. So I had a love affair with Max that goes pretty far back. And when you said that we were going to talk about Max von Sydow, I was like. Like, he's just legendary status to me. Um, I would argue that if he never made another film other than those that he made with Bergman, he would still be an absolute legend. And I would still say that his career is a phenomenal success. Um, His work in Seventh Seal alone and the fact that he started that at the tender age of 27 uh, really cements his legacy for me. Um, That chess game with death is one of the most memorable and imitated scenes in the history of cinema. It's absolutely iconic. Obviously, as a horror fan, we mentioned this, um, he would be considered an icon and a genre giant, even if he never did anything other than The Exorcist. He helped ground 
an unbelievable tale of supernatural evil and made every moment utterly believable, which I think went a long way to cementing that film as one of the most terrifying, truly terrifying films of all time, especially for when it came out. Um, even 40 years later, I think it's still just absolutely spellbinding. Um, as a cinephile, his art house work is something of reverence, um, but he also effortlessly, effortlessly transitioned from prestige performer to pop culture icon. Um, I'm also a geek, so I love the fact that he had made an impact on some of the most iconic sci-fi and fantasy franchises of all time, including Star Wars and Game of Thrones. Uh, not to mention his video game voiceover work, which is pretty amazing. Um, with his imposing stature and steely blue eyes, he also makes one hell of a menacing villain. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really difficult to think of another actor who is so gifted at playing both malevolence and benevolence. He has such a command when he's on screen that he only has to like raise an eyebrow or just make an eye motion. And it speaks volumes even without him saying anything. Um, and he's so able to emotionally invest the viewer and just really just send chills down your spine. And then even as he entered his senior years where he was generally relegated to supporting roles, he still had some really fine roles in there. And right up until his death at age 90, he was a figure of incredible force and subtlety. And he maintained that deep timber in his voice that gave every word he uttered immense gravitas. So, you know, in his illustrious career, I think he made everything he was in better. And like we talked about, even though he was every film he was in wasn't a masterpiece, but I don't think there was a film that he wasn't phenomenal in, no matter what material he was given. I think he's truly one of the greatest actors of his or any generation. And I really think it's pretty impossible to deny the influence and impact he's had on cinema. I know you guys said that you were going high. I think anything below a 90 is low for me for, um, for Vonsito, um, I'm going to go 95. I want to go higher, but I'm going to go 95 on him. <laughs> Do it. Go as high as you want. I respect it. Go as high as you want. I want to go 100, but... <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I'll do 95. All right. That feels good. You gave Jamie Lee a 95. Does that change your score? Shit. <laughs> you know what? F it. I'm going 100. I think he's perfect. There you I go. That's Clay Paulus. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Fucking A. All right, James, follow that up. It's going to be borderline impossible for me to follow that up. So what I'll do here instead is just bring up some random facts that weren't uh, mentioned. Films that he starred in were submitted by Sweden five of the six years in a uh, five out of six years in a row for uh, best foreign film. That one of the only actors who's been that represented uh, by a country in the Academy Awards, which is pretty impressive. Pretty much every movie he made for half a decade, they were like, this is the best one. No, this is the best one. No, this is the best one. I think it goes uh, a long way to show how uh, established he is and um, how proud uh, the country that he came from is of him, even though he might not fully associate with it since he ended up living all over the world. He had multiple houses. Um, I will say that I wasn't as familiar with his work. Uh, I was impressed. And the longevity, I think, is one of the things that stands out to me and to continue to reinvent yourself and hone your skill the way he did and uh, not feel out of place and still have such a commanding presence. Even when he's like 90 years old, it was really impressive. Um, I'm going to give him an 80. Right, case round it out. I think the easiest and most efficient way to hear everything that I would want to say is just back up to what Stephanie said. I think we share almost every, all of our thoughts are pretty much in line. 
So I'm just going to say whatever Stephanie said. And I'm going to give him a 90. All right. That gives Max Von Cito an 88.8. Remarkably consistent with that. And that puts him in sixth place. Sandwich between Jamie Lee Curtis and Maggie Smith. Nice. Damn. Top 10, baby. So good. And we got our first triple digit of all time. You'd love to see it. So that the, the height is Max and the basement is Andy McDowell in terms of overall scores. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult to score a, a performer's career like him. I always joke around about how arbitrary this process is. It couldn't be more arbitrary with a performer like Max Vincito. Yeah. Hard, yeah. When I cross off those other Bergman films, I'm going to want to change his score. The thing I'm really excited about, you guys, is that, uh, you know, his average critic rank ranks him seventh. So I feel like we're really starting to be in alignment with these critic scores, which I love. Nice. Sweet spot, baby. Sweet spot. <laughs> Next podcast is going to hit November 16th. And we're bringing back Laura Beneke, who was here for Gary Cole, Bonnie Hunt, Jennifer Lopez, and Jim Belushi, our favorite resident Chicago, and who joins us on the pod. And the, the wheel was selecting between these five. We had Pam Greer, Mila Kunis, Kate Blanchett, Melissa McCarthy, and Jamie Bell. So this one is a nice little change of pace. So who do we like? Who do we dislike? And uh, what are we thinking? Well, the answer is Pam Greer, but... Being that uh, Laura is so on brand, it's going to be the, the Illinois girl, Melissa McCarthy. Ooh, that makes sense. Good guess. Mm. Ace is right. Pam Greer would be a blast. I agree. Oh, so fun. Kate Blanchett would be my choice. We want a high score. She's great. As much as Pam Greer would be great, Kate Blanchett would be the choice. I would want to honor that career. I've seen Jamie Bell on this list of people before, and I hope it's not that one. Yeah, I don't want Jamie Bell, and I really don't love Mila Kunis either. Um, but the other three I'm perfectly content with. Melissa McCarthy would be tough. If we were going to bring you in for a non-Halloween episode, who would you pick? Uh, Kate Blanchett would be my pick. Yeah, that's because you're, you're a cinema nerd. I love it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Stephanie and I finally disagree on something, I guess. <laughs> I would not complain about talking about Pam Greer by any means. But Who would Rigby want to cover? That's the question, the ultimate question here. Jamie Bell. <laughs> he beat Kate Blanchett. It's Rigby. He loves he loves his drama. So. <laughs> All right, uh, Laura, who's Laura picking? Case already said Melissa McCarthy. Anybody disagree with that? His logic is sound. That was a really good guess. Laura doesn't decide. Stephanie doesn't decide. Rigby doesn't definitely doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> Stephanie, we uh, once again appreciate you coming on this ride with us in the middle of your busiest season of the year to be a part of this annual event. Uh, it was Aubrey's first Halloween episode, so I know he was jacked up about it. Uh, we so appreciate you being here. Any plugs, wise words for audience? It's kind of red carpet time. I mean, plugs. I just my website, morbidlybeautiful.com, um, has a ton of great horror content, lots of great writers. We post every day, usually multiple times a day. We also have a podcast network, so besides the shows that I'm on, there's a lot of great shows. Um, so if you're looking for horror content, great horror content, um, we got a lot of it. And then I will also say that it is, we mentioned earlier, I think maybe before we start recording, but it is festival season. I've seen a lot of amazing stuff. Um, my favorite thing that I have seen recently is Dream Scenario with Nick Cage, the A24 film. Mm, yep, It's freaking phenomenal, so if you get a chance to see that. See that, and also uh, Where Evil Lurks is coming to Shudder later this month, and it is also an amazing horror film if you like horror. Ooh. Yeah. Hell yeah. 
I love Shutter. Shutter's so great. Also, people go to that website. That website's beautiful. I was looking at that website. That website's awesome. Thank. Yeah, it's so well done. Thank you. Stephanie, you rule. It was a blast having you on again. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Well, as we wrap things up, you can find us on the X, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Max Von Cito? It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Munson's out. Alright, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Hey Sam, this is the guy I was telling you about. 